Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrow and I'm joined by my best man, Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Jimmy Two Times? I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> oh, why good fellas? <laughs> I mean, no one, I don't think many people listening to this need you and I to explain why Goodfellas is one of the best movies ever made and one of the most rewatchable movies ever made. And this was not a planned podcast. You know, we wanted to honor the great Ray Liotta, which we lost at this point a little over a month ago, still still in mourning about it, still shocked by it, honestly. And, you know, we were talking, what's a good way to really honor him? And why not just talk about the best movie he was in and arguably, though, in my opinion, the best performance he ever gave as Henry Hill in Goodfellas. Here we are. There's a lot of ways to talk about this movie. I hope we've come up with a pretty unique one. But tell me about Goodfellas as we get started here. You know, there's like there's books, right? Like there's books mm-hmm. of our time that will never go away. It's the books that we study in school, like, you know, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Like there's certain like Catch types. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's certain yeah. things that will always be a part of our artistic culture. I think Goodfellas is one of those movies. Yes. I don't think you can look from start to finish, the artistic contribution that Martin Scorsese made with this film and not consider this on that level of those contributions. It's, it's literature. It, it's a movie that has its own language. It has its own style. It's timeless. There is absolutely nothing dated about this movie. There is nothing that feels old, even though this movie is 30 years old. 32 years old, Goodfellas. That's it's, nuts. It's crazy. And I also, even though you said, why even do a pod on this when everyone knows about this movie? I do right. worry that there are younger audiences <laughs> that don't yes. know this movie. Perhaps I'm being presumptuous. Yes, yes. <laughs> They're missing out on this literature that needs to be um, valued and it needs to be kept alive. So we're not doing this episode to do that. But it, I, I do think there is something to be said about the fact that we shouldn't take it for granted in that way. Yeah, absolutely. There, Of course, there are younger people who have not seen this. There are probably some older folks who may not have seen it as well. But like you're saying, in terms of artistic value, whatever modern novel you're going to hold up there, whatever modern piece of art, when we're talking about the art form of film, Goodfellas deserves to be on the highest pedestal possible yeah. because it is a gateway into a totally new type of cinema. And there are, I, I mean, one could argue that almost every crime film or mafia movie made after this has at least referenced this movie in some way. I mean, I don't even think that's up for debate as much or if not more than The Godfather. It's up there in terms of references. And if you're willing to do a little extra digging, and we'll get into this, but this movie did, it's not like it came from nowhere. This is so heavily influenced by European French New Wave cinema. And it's really, really cool to investigate Goodfellas on that level and see where Marty was drawing his inspirations from. And then going back and watching that stuff and you're like, Holy shit. I mean, he was taking from things that were 30 years before his movie that were so revolutionary and it had nothing to do with the mafia. The narratives had nothing to do with it, but he's picking and pulling these narrative styles. Ah, it's like, it's breathtaking. The whole scope, the whole arc of Goodfellas, what came before, everything that's come after. It's a breathtaking arc of cinema, genuinely. And he's cooking with all of that 
and his own life experience. Exactly, exactly. I think that's why this movie, when you say that it's the best mob movie ever made or why it's referenced so much by that is because it's coming from truth. That real life world that he grew up in that he knows and he is just peppering that in with all those influences of medium that he loves. That's where you get the details. Yes. That's where the uh, the attention to detail is so important. Things that he's actually pulling from his real life that he witnessed. Raging Bull is the same thing. Like one of my favorite shots, if not my favorite shot of Raging Bull is the close-up of the rope. And it just pans yeah. over and then you see the blood dripping. That's a detail that he got from going to the fights. He just looked over and he's like, God, that rope is soaked with blood. That's what makes a movie so memorable. You know, the slicing the onion so specifically. Yep. Like the fact that you push in for that tight of a close-up and then you give it like two minutes of screen time, just the whole conversation. Not too many onions. You know, they just keep going. It's like that's the stuff that we laugh with 32 years later. That's the stuff we're still latching onto. All the most quotable stuff is stuff I've never even heard like referenced in another movie before. I'm going to go get the papers, get the papers. Or, you know, <laughs> hasn't been able to digest a decent meal in six weeks. You're like, I don't know where he's pulling this stuff from. It must be from real life. And Nick Pileggi, who wrote the book that this is based on and co-wrote the screenplay with Marty, has said that there's so much in this that Marty and I pulled from real real life that like you essentially you cannot write this shit either directly from Henry Hill's life or directly from their own lives and that plays through in the best of these type of films from Marty Goodfellas even Wolf of Wall Street which is based on a true story they have an access of riches that they are pumping into their movie that isn't just coming from Marty Scorsese he's taking so many different authentic sources and making uh, something really zany and entertaining. <laughs> Absolutely. And and one of my personal reasons that I adore this movie so much is is because like I got to grow up in my like high school years with a best friend who is a hundred percent Italian with his whole family. Nice. And this movie reminds me of them so much. I mean, obviously not the violence or like the No, just the family the, aspect. Yeah. yeah. The 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 rhythms of speech. Mm -hmm. What was the details? Um the way they talked, the way that things moved just organically, rhythmically in their lives and their speech. Being around that for like 4 years was just I mean, I was I was I was dressing like that i had like the right. really awful cheap leather jackets awesome. were just I, like you look like a gangster like my mom would be like yeah my mom's like what are you in the mob i go what i got it from my friend what's no problem but i look good mom's like the fuck are you kid <laughs> that's how my i can see the truth coming out of martin scorsese's life through this movie because in my experience i got to witness just a sliver of this type of right. community and family and just lifestyle that I'm like, yep, that's that's exactly what it is. Uh, that's just so cool. It's one of the coolest things for me about this movie. Yeah, that even in your own specific slice of life, this movie, it just made this movie feel more authentic, which yep. speaks <laughs> even better to the film. So, okay, Goodfellas, directed by Martin Scorsese, released in 1990. You may have heard of it. You may have seen it a dozen times. Again, I'm not sure if we can create our own unique Goodfellas narrative. That's why we are going to use this pod to talk a lot about Ray. It's going to be a very Ray Liotta-based pod. He's our he's essentially our home base for this episode. Yeah. That's that's how I'll frame it. You know, we love him, we miss him, 
Goodfellas. I would consider this, without breaking a sweat, one of the top 10 most popular American films ever made. And you can range popularity in terms of how many people have seen it, rewatched it, how quotable it is, how many college dorm rooms I saw with this poster hanging up. I mean, it famously lost Best Picture and Best Director to Dances with Wolves, which has... That's honestly, I think, aged even worse than the picture director losses for Raging Bull 10 years earlier. The Goodfellas stuff just holds up horribly how it fared at the Oscars. But It's a goddamn tragedy is what it is. I think it honestly uh, made a lot of people view the Oscars differently. Like, what are we doing here? And I don't think they – some people – actually, I know for a fact I've met a few people who have not taken them that seriously – after that, there was a huge, you know, before and after with Goodfellas. It was nominated for six Oscars. It won one supporting actor for Joe Pesci, one of the greatest Oscar speeches of all time. Just go watch it. Yeah. I'm thrilled that Pesci won. But again, this is insane. Like one Oscar, it's it's ridiculous. And then forget picture and director. Like how the hell are you going to tell me that Dances with Wolves is a better edited film than Goodfellas? That's it. That is absolute madness. That is delusional. I mean that, oh my God. To be fair, I've seen Dances with Wolves twice. I don't, I, I don't know. That movie is just so much more shitted on and hated on because of the of these victories. If it hadn't have won those and Goodfellas had had justly won, Dances with Wolves would be remembered like kind of fondly. It would Yeah, be. yeah. But now so many people just shit on it. Ordinary People is something that years later has kind of come out the other side. Yep. It's not a better movie than Raging Bull, in my opinion, but it is a really good movie. But again, just Goodfellas. Lack of Oscar love. We're talking about this early because it's so ridiculous and it is so talked about, but it's just, again, delusional. I feel like Dances with Wolves, every time it's mentioned or brought up, there's like an asterisk next to it. Every time. And it's every time. That asterisk is one over Goodfellas. And then the immediate reaction is like, wait, what? Huh? And then and that, and that that's that's the uh, the crux that Dances with Wolves has to bear now is like, yeah, we, it we won over Goodfellas. I don't, I just, it's not something that can be justified. I know at the time, Perhaps this is worth mentioning if we're going to add a little context. Goodfellas was, it was liked by all. It made money. Critics loved it. Again, it was nominated for Oscars, but it was a shock. It was a violent film. It was a profane film. And I think even as the night was getting closer, the narrative had become, we've went around this most recent Oscar time, we talk a lot about the Oscar narrative. The narrative was Dances with Wolves may perhaps win picture and Marty will win director. And that's not unusual. The year before, Driving Miss Daisy won picture and Oliver Stone, Born on the Fourth of July, won director. Yeah. So they would they could often go for the more uh, artistic, gritty effort for director. And then even when that didn't happen, that's just like, come on, this is silly. But Honestly, we're not really going to reference Oscars again for the rest of this podcast because there's no need to. All right. <laughs> all right. Okay. Here, here's, here's the question I have. Is it more of a sin that Kevin Costner won Best Director over Martin Scorsese winning it for this? That's Yes. To answer it shortly, yes. And that is why I want to mention that context because I've read – I've done – I mean, you know, I know so much about Goodfellas already, but this week has been fun to go just refresh myself. There was a great oral history that was published in GQ, I think in 2010. It's a lot of fun to read. But even in that, someone says – I think it was – um Ileana Douglas, who was who has a brief role in Goodfellas and was dating Marty at the time, and he kind of figured or assumed 
Dances with Wolves, Best Picture, I'll probably get director. And yeah, that to me is way more, it's way more baffling when you take into context that, I mean, this goes back much, much farther. Like I think Place in the Sun should have won Best Picture. It won Best Director, but then An American in Paris wins Best Picture. 1956, Around the World in 80 Days wins Best Picture, one of the worst Best Picture winners ever. George Stevens wins Best Director again for Giant, and I think that would show one picture. So this has been going on for a very long time, and it's just another, yet another example of the Oscars really messing it up, and that it's more egregious, honestly, that Robert Redford beat Scorsese and for Director Ordinary People Raging Bull. That's more egregious as well. Oh, but, shit. You know, two, two actors. Actors, yep, yep. Beat Scorsese. And, 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 you know, and the thing about Goodfellas, too, is like, you know, he I can do you one better. I can do you one better than this. Huh. He lost, of course, in uh, 2002 for Gangs of New York. That lost everything. But then jumped to 2004. He's up there for The Aviator. He loses to Clint Eastwood for Million Dollar Baby. Picture director. No. <laughs> Three times. <laughs> so, yes. I mean, Clint had already won picture director for Unforgiven. So he's an established director. But he yeah, also yeah, he used is. to be an actor. And but he's, he's known an actor. As, he was nominated for actor that year for Million Dollar Baby as well. So it's, yeah, boom, boom. Uh-oh. And then two years later, Marty wins for The Departed, which we've talked about ad nauseum yep. on this podcast. So plenty to go check out about that our first commentary oh boy oh my god you got you got <laughs> to right. think every time Mart- marty's lost he's always like these fucking actors just coming out of nowhere taking my fucking statue <laughs> exactly <laughs> what am i doing wrong here <laughs> but i mean there's no hard feelings because one of martin scorsese's no, no, best no. acting performances is as a really big head honcho bigwig in robert redford's quiz show it's a brief role but he's really good in it so it's all you know it's bygones be bygones like can't make these movies to win awards. I, I, yeah. I can tell you any number of movies I've seen that make these movies to win awards. And Scorsese doesn't do that. That's not the that's not the way to go about it. No, he does not. Goodfellas, what's it about? <laughs> Oof. I mean, come on. The movie tells the true story of a rags to riches to rags gangster Henry Hill, who was a real-life gangster who worked his way up as an earner and an enforcer for the Lucchese crime family in New York City. Three decades in the life of the mafia, 146 minutes long, not a second is wasted. I could argue that this is the most rewatchable film ever made. I've watched it three times this past week because why the hell not? I've seen it. I'm not going to admit how many times I believe I've seen it, but uh, Martin Scorsese, this is, you you know, you kind of referenced it earlier, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, a director's best film which is perhaps an objective question versus your favorite, which is a very subjective question. One could argue that this is the best film Martin Scorsese has ever made. I'm not going to argue against it. You're not going to have to sell me that hard to you know, make that point. Dedicated listeners of this podcast will know that my favorite film of all time, favorite film of all time, is Taxi Driver. There is a difference there. I still think they're both masterpiece A-plus films. All that to say, honestly, that's not even the controversy for me. The controversy is, what do I like better, Goodfellas or Casino? And I still have no real way to properly answer this. I think Goodfellas is perhaps a tighter narrative more rewatchable because it is a bit shorter. It's probably more seen, but I have seen Casino more times. I think Casino has a little, slightly a little more humor. I laugh a little more during it. And I don't know. There's it, Again, it's like which side of this gold coin is shinier. I love them both, but just kind of want to know where does Goodfellas rank for you like among Marty? It's way up there. It's not my favorite. 
it's a taxi driver is my favorite Martin Scorsese movie. Yeah. And I am of the same um, particular debacle that you have where between Goodfellas and Casino, it's kind of like how I always feel about The Godfather 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. It's like when I'm watching Goodfellas, I think Goodfellas is the better movie. And then when I'm watching Casino, I'm like, nah, Casino, Casino's where it's at. And these are not to say that like these are the better movies, but it's just when you're in them and you're living in them, mm-hmm. you're just watching perfection on screen. You're watching a master. I think I would put Goodfellas a little bit higher if I was doing it more from a perception that this is America's movie in that way. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. this is yeah, this like is part exactly of the artistic said. art form type yep. deal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. I think I think Goodfellas is revered in that way more than Casino. I think I don't know why Casino just seems to be one of those movies that kind of is one of those hidden gems. It's kind of from slept on. It's very strange. Yeah, it's very fucking strange. Considering that was the last movie he made with De Niro until The Irishman, like there's a huge gap there of one of the best director actor collaborations ever. It's it's weird. Casino does better now. With social media, it's it's talked about a lot on there. It's memed a lot. I think younger audiences get to it. They have fun with it. It's talked about a lot more now than even in the early 2000s, for sure. Oh, yeah. I, I don't even... I think I would, I've would. i heard of the movie in the early 2000s, and I was like, wait, oh, yeah, that's a Scorsese movie, right? I was watching the double cassette VHS the weekend it was released on VHS in 96. <laughs> Friend Chris and I almost vomited the first time I uh, reached the baseball bat scene of that. One of the few movies that almost Ooh, made me uh, lose it. Yeah, almost almost came up. I was 10. I was 10 years old and remember very distinctly. Ooh, That is <laughs> – I, I I sympathize Ooh. with that. I, I think that is one of the most grotesque – uses of violence i've ever seen in a movie mm-hmm. i think it's, it's very brutal. very affecting yeah, yeah still uh still holds up in terms of its effectiveness he he achieved what he set out to achieve but back to goodfellas because i'll tell you something casino doesn't have ray fucking leota and let's talk about this narrative construction before we get to him i did mention how important that is so a lot of the goodfellas style in terms of the way it is cut together and the way that it moves comes from the 1962 French film Jules and Jim, directed by Francois Truffaut, one of the most popular French New Wave pieces of cinema ever, incredibly influential movie over a number of different directors, and this one. Marty's love for Jules and Jim is all over Goodfellas. The extensive narration, the quick editing, the freeze frames, the multiple, sw- we're going from here to here, passing multiple decades in the span of, you know, just an hour and 40 minutes. And even like in The Departed, that great shot of Damon as he's getting ready to walk into the police building and that vignette that zooms in on him in that circle, that's here in Jules and Jim. Like they do that exact thing. I mean, so I just want to introduce that by way of saying like that is where Marty is pulling his inspiration from. And then I want to move very quickly to ask, is this the best movie opening of all time, Goodfellas? And here's my case for it. If we do the opening of the movie is, you know, <laughs> they're driving Ray Liotta, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci. They think they hear something in their trunk and we assume very quickly that they have grave they have hurt a man very gravely. They have assumed he is dead. They are driving to bury him and he's still alive. And then they open the trunk and they kill him. Most people know. Most people have seen this. They know what I'm talking about. If we do not see them commit this act of violence, then we do not see them 
commit an act of violence until about the 56-minute mark in the film when they kill Bats. Granted, the Ray Liotta pistol-whipping scene happens before that. That happens at about the 40-minute mark. But we do not see their full brutality until they kill that man who was in the trunk in the beginning. So the violence here is really coming full circle, and it opens the narrative up. So it's like an hour into the movie, the movie gets to start again. This is what I'm talking about with brilliant filmmaking. And if you just start the movie with young Henry Hill looking out the window at the cab stand, it has a certain innocence to it that it doesn't mean the violence later isn't going to be more impactful. It actually might be more shocking because we're like, whoa. But right away, Marty and editor Thelma Schoonmaker are like, we are going to let you know exactly what fucking world you're getting into. Don't idolize these guys too much. They are fucking killers. I'm going to spend about an hour showing you fun stuff. You know, Robin, Robin trucks, Robin stores, wearing the flashy suits, uh, you know, the women going to the Copa. Oh, great. It's all fun. It's all good. But it's not going to be fun by the end. And I'm reminding you of that very, very early. That's my case for it. I do think this is the best intro to a movie of all time. I'd have to really think about what my personal favorite intro to a movie is. But upon hearing everything that you're saying, I would like to back up your argument in some ways. Mm-hmm. We are seeing an extreme level of violence to start off the whole entire thing, which is cluing us in that this is a movie that is going to go here. This is the world that we're, to your point, this is the world that we're getting into. And then it's got quite possibly the best hook of a line to start off anything when that infamous shot of Ray oh Liotta closing the trunk, the zoom going right into his face. For as long as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. And then it freeze. Boom, 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 boom. You are instantly now, and then where we go from there is the beginning when he's a kid and all that. So it does speak a bit of like a, a novel kind of language in that way. But just to kind of, you know, back up your point, that opening scene just by that just lets you know every single thing you need to know, need to feel, and then the hook. Yeah. Because this is genuinely one of the reasons why the film is so great. This structure, this pace. Again, Ray Liotta does pistol whip that guy about 40 minutes into the film. He does not kill him. Bats is the first murder, first of many. But that beginning puts everything into context, including how much we should fear Joe Pesci. Because his am I funny how scene comes before we see him do any violence chronologically that happens about 19 minutes into the movie if again if we just start on young henry hill in that window during pesci's i'm funny how the first time you're watching the movie what i mean his acting is good enough to be afraid of him but we as an audience have already seen this dude butcher a guy with a fucking kitchen knife so we're like holy shit is he about to what what is he about to pull out from behind his suit jacket here and put on ray Liotta? it's just oh my god I mentioned how after they kill Bats, now the narrative is caught up with itself because we see him. Now we see how the guy got into the trunk. And then all the bad stuff happens after Bats is killed. Affairs, fights with Karen, casual murders of the crew like Spider, digging Bats up, drugs, prison. All that happens within 20 minutes of them killing Bats. So this movie is constantly reinventing itself. And you see those very fun riches and then we get that downfall that it just oh it becomes so not fun anymore very quickly wolf of wall street does this too he's one of the geniuses of this arc i mean i would argue he even created this arc or at least no the rags to riches thing existed but he has what he's done with it 
He created it in a way that made it so fucking entertaining and so compelling to watch that you know what's coming. You know this is not going to last forever, and no one handles this better than Marty and Thelma. They really don't. It's just, it's incredible to watch. And not to even keep digging in too much of this opening scene, but you have to ask yourself the question, if that, if this wasn't the opening scene, if you're Mm -hmm. to your point, if you just started with young Henry Hill, even if you had the opening line, like, I always wanted to be a gangster, then it cuts right to Henry Hill. Right. Would it work as effectively? No, not at all. Not because the whole time you're watching this movie up until, I mean, this is a very familiar thing now. A lot of horror movies, honestly, I don't know why this is coming to my mind, but even Possessor does this. There's a brutal killing in the very beginning of Possessor. It's not, it's told chronologically, but then we don't see another murder for like an hour. So this is a common thing to show us something to set the tone of your movie because Goodfellas is going to a dark fucking place to set that up front and to give us some suggestion about where we're going. It's just smart and it puts us on edge right away we are not comfortable we are like holy shit this movie can take us anywhere or who the hell was that in the trunk when is that going to come up how and we're just sitting there knowing that this explosive casual violence can pop off at any time and again i'm not suggesting that the film doesn't have any violence for an hour even the guy oh god they shot me and wrapping the pizza aprons around him like that's very bloody but the next killing comes when we see how that man got into the trunk it's brilliant narrative construction, and so impactful for the movie. And it's when we finally do catch up to it, we realize that this is the point of no return structurally for the movie. Yeah. Like, when they kill Billy Bats, like, that is the downfall of everyone else as we go. So when we catch up to it, now we're like, oh, shit, this was, now we're in real time again. Right. And what's going to happen after this now? I wonder, maybe you know, was that actually... In the script screenplay, written design that way, or is that found in the edit? No, that and I just uh, in my research, and I did credit Thelma before with it earlier, but it was you know it was part of their doing, but it was in the script. It was Nick Pledgey and Martin mm-hmm. Scorsese came up with that, and but not in the first draft. They're like, what is oh, a good wow. way like into this? We have to move into there, so. You know, credit Pelleggi, Scorsese, Thelma, all of them for coming up with that idea of, no, let's put this here first. Let's so, let's set the tone. Some people, I, this happened a lot with Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street, that a lot of critics, this was, it was the beginning of the wave of representation is endorsement. And because Scorsese was showing this stuff, he endorses it. And it's like, whoa, hold on, hold on. And that some of that was happening with Goodfellas too. Like, oh, because it's shot so well and it's in such, they're in such good costumes and it's so flashy and well edited that he's telling us to condone this lifestyle. And I think you're a fucking lunatic if you think Scorsese wants you to condone this lifestyle. Yeah. And I think he's telling you that right away. Like, I don't think, you know, shooting and stabbing someone in a trunk is okay. Yeah, here you go. Do with it what you will. More to come later. <laughs> so when you were forming this outline, the first thing, the one of the things that you said was the very first note that I had when I rewatched it. Is this the best voiceover of all time? Yeah, I put that question there as a conversation starter. I suppose my easy answer again is yes. And I know we're doing a lot of all-timers here. Favorite opening scene, favorite voiceover. There are other... I mean, voiceover goes back as far as film does. And there are great examples. There's Sunset Boulevard. That's a really interesting one because he's telling you in just about his very first line that he's doing this voiceover from the grave, similar to like American Beauty. That's a really interesting way to tell a story. And you have something like Apocalypse Now obviously comes to mind where 
it really feels like an extension, a direct extension of his character. And you don't really know the time and the place and the circumstance that Martin Sheen actually recorded that under, like he was holding a real fucking gun in the recording room. It's crazy. Sissy Spacek in Badlands, I think is great. I think it's so yeah. innocent and gives you just this, this really unique insight into, you know, killers. <laughs> and something to make it a little more mainstream, Shawshank Redemption is something where the narration is mentioned a lot about that movie. And, you know, it made Morgan Freeman voice the Morgan Freeman voice. And I think that's a really good example of it. But we can't sleep on how impactful Scorsese has been to voiceover narration in cinema, Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, a unique type of narration because it's Very. all from his diary, which can we cannot uh, rely upon. You shouldn't be taking anything travels, Travis Bickle is saying as fact. It's coming from his warped mind. Casino has the type of voiceover that's really cool because it keeps bouncing around. And then like Frank Vincent gets those one or two lines, which I love. The Wolf of Wall Street is great voiceover. Voiceover can be amusing. It serves a lot of purposes. I genuinely have never laughed harder in voiceover than I did in De Niro's for the Irishman. Because there's one scene when he's like, oh, yeah, some haven't you got a, I don't know, I fucking got whack. I don't know. And he just mumbles <laughs> off. And he's like, yeah, I don't know what the fuck. It's toward the end of the movie and it's fucking hysterical. I've ever been in the theater just dying. It's like, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, the Goodfellas, though, like the register that, Leota is delivering it in because voiceover yes. is acting voice acting for animated films is acting it really fucking matters where that's coming from what energy is he bringing into it and he sounds a little he never sounds like fully excited he sounds like a guy like he's delivering it from wherever the hell he's living now you know like another yeah schnook. yeah like he's just right there and yeah just like uh and but I mean, even when he's not on screen, we feel him through his delivery. Like everybody takes a beating sometime. I mean, the way I remember seeing that for the first time and going, wow, that's like, that's this guy's, that's where he lives. He's just accepting, like taking whippings from his dad, like whatever, whatever I have to do to live the life. Or they're really funny ones. Like, how could I sit there and take that good government bullshit? I love the way he just like, yep. eases that out. And then, you know, of course, fuck you, pay me is hysterical. That's, I've heard that reference in any number of rap songs. Like, it's just, it's everywhere. Everyone knows, fuck you, pay me. And there's also, I want to say, a lot of voiceover in Goodfellas. A lot. It takes up pretty much the whole movie. And he and Lorraine Bracco playing his wife, Karen. Yes. Which is genius that they split it to occasionally jump to her POV. That's just, uh, we can even jump into that. Like, it's genius how it you just never expect it. And then handing her the pistol, like, I got to admit the truth, it kind of turned me on. Now we know right away where Karen's coming from. Like, wow, I, I don't know. I You know, some of my girlfriends, <laughs> their boyfriend handed them a pistol, but make them run. Like, yeah. But then she admits that, and you're like, whoa, great. Now we're taking another turn. And I, and I feel like that's something that a lot of people actually kind of, like, you recognize it when you're watching it, but it's not something you actually truly take in. You're like, wow, the voiceover just became a tag team. Yeah. And um, I remember rewatching it and seeing when it actually happened. It happened for the first time when they're in the restaurant on yep. their first date, the one that he doesn't want to be at. Flipping the lighter and, and stuff. Yeah. Yep. And all of a sudden, you know, she's just sort of like, I couldn't stand him. And all of a sudden I go, whoa. Yeah. Because the, I, the I had frame forgotten. like crashes her. It like goes into yeah. her and isolates her. And you're like, whoa, what the fuck is this? This is Henry Hill's I, movie. What is this? I had I've <laughs> seen this movie so many freaking times. And it was this viewing that I was like, whoa, 
holy shit, the voiceover just changed. That's what makes it so rewatchable. Yeah, and and then I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. She is like, this is a thing, but it it, it bowled me over. But the one thing I want to say to your point about all this about the there is something about a voiceover when it works is because there's a musicality to the actor or the narrator and just their actual voice. There's something about Ray Liotta's voice that is so unique and and this is a bad time. I God, I just love it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a certain grovel, but there's yeah. also a certain high pitchedness. There, there's just something about his voice that's intriguing. Mm-hmm. It's very mm-hmm. compelling, very captivating, and also like you don't hear that voice a lot, right? It, it, it's easy to kind of hear De Niro because it's just so unique and and it's iconic. It almost seems like you fall right into it. But Ray Liotta, you're like, wait, Ray Liotta? Yeah, I'm gonna listen to a movie with Ray Liotta talking for the whole entire time. And it's fucking beautiful. And that would have been new to people in 1990 because, you know, I yeah. did a, a quick Ray Liotta minisode the day that he passed, but Scorsese saw him in his first film role in Jonathan Demi's Something Wild. And he is, he's an explosive ex-con. It, I mean, he is nuts in that. He is great. I actually rewatched that this week. I had only seen it once. So good to rewatch it to like channel that. Ray Liotta energy, and he does a few other movies, um, most notably Field of Dreams, in which he's playing Shoeless Joe yeah. Jackson in 1989. Completely different register than what he's bringing to Henry Hill, but it was something wild that initially intrigued Scorsese about it. But you know, he searched for Henry Hill for about a year to cast this. My point is, though, Ray Liotta was a uh, not like unknown, but a relative unknown. Everyone knew who Pesci and De Niro was, and he did yeah. not want to give Pinesh, Pesci or De Niro that main part he wanted it to be someone that we didn't have that much of a relationship with and it's a huge part even looking at the voiceover and you know you're in almost every scene of the film so yeah it's i want to talk about the actors because we are going to talk about most everyone in the movie but i want to talk about them how they relate to ray so all the people in his crew lorraine brocco all that stuff i just want to have as much of a ray focused conversation as we can because i miss him and we've already talked about what he's bringing to the voiceover, which is such a big part of his performance. And just, I mean, we're going to get into it, but my God, this is some incredible work from one of, I've said it a lot in the past month, but one of my favorite actors ever. And I do think this is his finest performance. I said that in the minisode. So we're going to get into Ray now. We're all in. First up, let's talk about Ray and Joe, because (laughs) even when you beat when Joe walks into frame, when it's that young actor, you're like, I wonder who this is going to be. <laughs> you still are going to be working together. He goes, all right, sounds good. You're like, yeah, this is definitely going to be Joe. And yep, then yep. it was so convincing as a duo from that opening shot when it just pans up from their shoes at the airport. My absolute favorite interaction they have. And one of my favorite, if not my favorite moment in the movie is Pesci cleaning up after the bats killing and he looks right at Leota and goes I didn't want to get blood on your floor and you're like yeah what? and Leota just looks at him and goes oh my god that's that's what's in his head right now like he has no idea this is the death I mean you know this podcast is coming from a place of people who have seen Goodfellas this is a spoiler episode I should have said that up front but you know come on it's Goodfellas it's 32 years old it's one of the most popular movies ever that's the killing of bats that leads 
to Joe Pesci dying. It's years later, yeah. but it's revenge for that. And the only thing he's worried about is blood on the floor. I love, I love everything about the way Pesci plays this, of course, but I love their dichotomy because Joe Pesci, Tommy, is a psychopath. Like I've done so much research on this movie. I listened to this is great. DVD commentary with Henry Hill and the agent who got him into witness protection, which is really cool. And he's talking, he just says over and over, yeah, he was this insane. Like it, when a guy acts like this, they are bound to get killed even by their own crew because they are a loose cannon. And watching that, like, you know, we never see Ray Liotta kill anyone. We never see Henry Hill kill anyone. No. And watching that him toe that line of, yeah, there, there's a line and we're all, we're all playing in this game, but I mean, they're they're going overtime, and I'm just staying. I'll stay on the bench during this. It's it's really really thrilling to watch. It's terrifying, trust me, but it's thrilling. Favorite Pesci and Ray scene? It's it's so easy to say it's the funny how. I mean, so I'm <laughs> yeah. not gonna say it. Yeah, I'm not gonna say it. Um, my favorite scene actually with them is when they're in the car together, just the two of them. Prejudice against just, Italians? Yes. That's what I have yes. written down too. I love yes. that scene. But if I can get a good fucking score here, if you go down. Ray <laughs> <laughs> Pesci just gets wound up. Yeah. It's so great. Oh, but sorry, keep going. Uh. It's also <laughs> the one time that we actually see Joe Pesci somewhat real in that way where he's he's asking for something yeah he's like hey i i want you to go on this double date he's not saying it quite like that and ray's like no i got a thing what do you mean, no, he goes, I mean hey, yet. I, i'm trying to bang this broad okay what what do you want from me i'm trying i'm trying to do this one thing why won't you do this and it's in that is when ray kind of comes along to it is like i'm just trying to do this one thing it, it feels like this is their relationship Ray knows that, oh, God, man, he's just always, you know, he's like, all right, you ask me, ask me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I just stop talking about it now. Just stop talking about it. <laughs> you with your big fucking mouth. Yeah, and then they they're get so wrapped up in it that they miss that the building's about yeah, exactly. to catch fire. And it's like, look at you in the mouth. We, we should have been gone by now. <laughs> but I'm telling you, that's what, when you watch that scene the first time, you're, you, you're looking for the smoke and the fire and then it comes yeah, and yeah. I, you may miss, I just, I really implore people to go back and watch how Pesci just starts to rant at the end. You know, she loses the five points. We get a big fucking score out of this. It's just, you're like, what? How did we get to that? And he's just, oh man, he's really, really going. Yeah. That's what I, I, so, I love that you marked that too. Cause that's always been one of my favorites between them. Like, no, no. And then, I mean, in the next, that's what's so cool about Pesci in this, because that next scene on the date, like, what are you doing? We just got here. Like, he's so yeah. calm and clearly doing, he's putting on some charm in an effort to yep. move the woman back. I mean, uh, obviously, we get we get what's going on. But just to see these moments of lightness from him, I mean, the scene with Scorsese's mom playing Tommy's mother in the movie is so, just the way he is with her, like, oh my God, it's so great. And then what I want to say about the Pesci performance is the death of Tommy really does represent the death of their Goodfellas empire. He only said yeah. that, that line is only said once Goodfellas, you know, we call each other Goodfellas. It's right before Pesci gets killed and it just, it really, all the gloss is gone. Now we descend into pure chaos, you know, jump into the fire. It's just, ah, it's great. My final thing about Joe Pesci's performance in this movie and referencing that scene with the mom. And unfortunately, I have to call a few people out here, you included. So here we go. Oh, son of a here bitch. Is. I know here what you're going to fucking here do. It is. God I'm damn doing it. it. I'm doing it. And this Ugh. time, folks, I have visual evidence. I have visual evidence. My case is tight. This is a bunch of bullshit. Explain to me how it's bullshit before I start. 
Explain. I just can't believe you're. I can't believe you're bringing this up on the pod. You, you're not the only one getting dragged onto the bus here. I promise you're not. You're not. There's like uh, uh, ten right. people. Ten people. Here we go. I was in Atlantic City in like October. Just there. I'm checking into the hotel with my wife. We were going to see a comedian, Bill Burr. We had tickets, so we check in a night early. So I'm checking in, and I'm in line. I'm behind someone. And on the wall, directly behind the person who checks you into the hotel, there is a little portrait. And it is a portrait of one dog looking this way, one dog looking the other way, and a man with a beard sitting in a boat. Basically, it's, it's that exact portrait from Goodfellas. It's like a print of it, obviously. But it is hanging up behind the dude checking people in. And I see this and I just start like laughing. And there's someone standing behind me. So I start laughing and then I get up to be checked in. And I say, oh, one dog goes one way. The other dog goes the other way. Blank. Guy has no fucking clue what I'm talking about. I'm like, and he's nice. He's nice. You know, he's like courteous customer service. And I'm like, uh, okay. So I start a thing where every time I go down to the front lobby to ask like, whatever, you know, you need stuff sometimes more time. I mean, whatever you're down there. That would be how I would introduce myself to every person who works there. No one had the slightest fucking clue what I was talking about. Two people behind me in line twice heard me and started laughing. And they were like, it, they were laughing at how funny it was that no one else got it. So then I'm just getting heartbroken. Like it's up at their hotel and people still don't get this. Then I get the idea. I'm going to take a picture of exactly what it looks like to stand here when you're checking into the hotel. And I'm going to text a few people. So I texted a few people. The top five movie people I know, I texted them a picture of my POV and I said, one dog goes one way, the other dog goes the other way. These are people who I thought, I thought, <laughs> knew about movies and cared about them. All five within 10 minutes go, huh? What? Did you mean to send this to me? Huh? No one has the slightest fucking clue what I'm talking about. And I have visual evidence. I still have the picture. I'm going to post this picture no, on our Twitter I know, account. I know what you're talking about. Including you, about. but it wasn't just you. It was also my friend Taylor, who you know. Taylor's surprising because he's a few years older than me, so I figured he would have gotten that. <laughs> Fucker. <laughs> no one got it. So then I start to send it to more people, including you all, and I say, okay, is there anything in this picture that I just sent you that reminds you of any movie, including the quote that I just texted, any movie? I say this to all five of these movie people. No one has a clue what I'm fucking talking about. No one. I up this. I sent it to about 20 people total. More every uh. time I send it to someone more context. Do you notice anything in this picture from Goodfellas? No one has a fucking <laughs> clue. A clue. I have to start explaining it to people and then sending people the fucking YouTube clip from the movie because they have no idea what I'm talking about. I've never been more unseen in my entire life. It was a terrible weekend, that's all. <laughs> it was nuts. Not even my dad got it. No, I mean it was so funny. I mean, I, I'm just sending it to people more context every time. At first, it's a quote. Okay, now it's from a movie. Now it's from Goodfellas. No one. No one knew. That's the last thing I had to say about I'm done with the podcast. I'm walking away. <laughs> you take it. I'm walking away. This, this is the last one. Suzanne, I'm, I'm saving this. I was heartbroken. I knew my Twitter heads would have gotten me, but I wanted to be able to explain this on the pod. So now, you know, John Klein would have understood. He would have gotten a man on fire. He would have gotten that shit within seconds. Seconds. Just from the quote, one dog goes one way, one dog goes the other listen, way. They got I'm it. not going to speak for those fine two gentlemen, but I'm going to say <laughs> upon watching it uh, this time around and we get to that scene, I literally 
had my note because like I always have like a notepad in my hand when I'm watching movies for the pod. Yeah. And then I, I literally as soon as we get to the painting, I just tossed it right in the air, yep. threw my arms up in the air. I go, motherfucker, there it is. God damn it. And um yeah, so yeah, one dog goes this way, the other goes that way. Yep, I like it. I go, look at this, look at his head. This one, one goes east, one goes west. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> Looks like someone we know. <laughs> all right. Speaking oh of, my God. Right. Uh, God, I, and I but love that, De Niro in that scene. Oof, like, uh, what a great scene. That, that scene is just great because you know where they've come from, yeah. from this killing and where they have to go. And now they're trying to put their best together for dinner. And to Joe Pesci's psychopathic nature, he's the only one who settles into that scene as if it is a family dinner. He's just eating. Yep. Yeah, he's just lapping it Ray up. Ray Liotta <laughs> is like freaking out because he understands the gravity of what's just happened. De Niro is doing his best Yeah. to to be like, you know, like continue conversation, to try to be accommodating, but he still knows damn well what's going on. But Pesci's the only one that's almost forgotten that yeah. there's a guy in the trunk. <laughs> he, his mom's telling jokes, so he's content to be a jerk. Oh, God. He's yeah. great. Let's get to De Niro and Ray in this because he probably honestly has more screen time with De Niro than I would say he has the most maybe with Lorraine Bracco. Yeah. And then, I mean, he has a lot with De Niro in this and it's a great, this, Ray Liotta was never given enough credit for this movie. I mean, I'm so glad Pesci was nominated and Juan Lorraine Bracco was nominated. That's great too. Ray Liotta absolutely should have been nominated for best actor for this and he wasn't. Oh. It's just, it's one of the, it's another egregious Oscar faux pas for 1990 but yeah De Niro Ray in this great chemistry right away the one thing I want to say I think the thing I like most about this is that De Niro as Jimmy is always game for their little heists even when drugs become involved because Paulie's like stay away from this fucking drugs I don't want anything about it but De Niro's just along for it and I really like that that dynamic of De Niro being being an authority figure but also knowing that he can technically never be a made guy because he's not 100% Italian. Yep. And he does dirt with them as opposed to just ordering them to do dirt. And I'd love that. And you know why? Because Jimmy loved to steal. And that's really it. Like, the yeah, dude just yeah. fucking gets so much enjoyment out of it. And uh, folks, you want to know a lesson in acting? Go look at the line delivery of, you may know who we are, but we know who you are. Uh, I remember the first time I saw that movie being like, Wow, he played with language there. I just, I, that's the type of stuff I fucking love that shit. But I mean, he's great in this. Oh, shocker. De Niro's great in Goodfellas, but I, I know, I, shocker, I love yeah, their like... dynamic in it. I, I really, really love it. And how he kind of fears Pesci too. Yeah. He's very aware when Pesci, yep. the spider stuff. Like if you watch De Niro's face during that card game, he's like, are, you know, are, even when he, after he shoots spider in the foot, Tommy does, De Niro's like, are, you know, are you in? And he just, it, he's like, God, man, it doesn't, we didn't have to go there with it. Like, you st and then he kills him, you stupid son of a bitch. You're going to dig the fucking hole. Like, <laughs> one of my favorite moments with De Niro is in the Billy Bat scene where Pesci leaves. You know, he's trying to ice over the situation. And, and but even De Niro in that moment is like, mm, you insulted him a little bit. You insulted a little him bit, a little just bit. A, just a little bit. <laughs> and, and he's like, no, I did not insult him. Drinks are on. Drinks are on the house. The house. Yep. Okay. Yep. okay. My <laughs> favorite moment between De Niro and Ray is actually a scene where they have no dialogue mm -hmm. together. Because mm -hmm. I actually think that true, like real, like chemistry and understanding of two characters in a movie is always really, really good when they actually don't have any lines. Mm -hmm. So it's the scene where. De Niro finds out that Tommy just got whacked. Yeah, the phone booth. Ugh. The phone booth. And and obviously, you know, like, you know, for somewhat a man like De Niro to start to cry, 
that's not something a guy like him does. No, and this is not to interrupt, but I did listen to that commentary with Henry Hill, and he said, that's the only time I ever saw that man shed a tear in my fucking life was after Tommy was killed. Yeah. Yep. And you can see De Niro coming out of that booth in the emotional state that he is. Ray Liotta comes out. Immediately, he understands. Yeah. They Like, you know, he says it like they whacked, whacked him. him. They whacked, whacked, whacked him. But you can see the way that Ray is processing the information that he's heard, but he's also witnessing this man he's never seen be like Mm -hmm. this and trying to be there for him. There almost is a moment to me that seemed like like De Niro almost kind of wanted to hug. Mm -hmm. Like like he goes in just like a little bit for just some type of like close comfort. Ray doesn't even know what to do. So he just kind of almost just reaches out his arm to pat him. Just seeing how these two are energetically, they're being extremely truthful to the circumstances, but they're also being extremely truthful to who they are as characters and what do we do here with each other. I I think that that scene is just so full of life. I love that scene between the two of them. Yeah, and De Niro, you can tell he's like he's holding, trying to hold back that crying, like because yeah. that's not what yep. you know yep. what you do. And they only did that once. They only filmed it once, and De Niro was really it, yo, one take. Yeah, one take because he had to. That's a. It was a tough place for De Niro to get to, and I know that from that oral history. He says that specifically, and it was not planned that he was going to knock that fucking phone booth over. He's just going for it. Wow, and I mean, you can you can really tell. I mean, it's so sad. It's so shocking. Speaking of the assassination of Joe Pesci in this film, do you know who kills him? <laughs> Oh man, it's <laughs> I don't I'm not looking for his name, but have you ever seen him in another movie that comes to mind? And uh, for the record, that's Paul Sorvino's brother. He's playing Paul Sorvino's brother in the movie Tootie. You see him in the beginning. We got a fucking Who toughen this kid up. That's Frankie Sharp, Sharp Records from Wayne's World. <laughs> oh my god, that is that hilarious. And then the old guy. How about the old guy when he gets here on the phone? Ah, we had a little problem. It's like, Jesus, I mean, they're just so cold. And there's nothing, there was nothing we could do about it. Yep, yep. That that moment, that's one of those moments in movies where you only see that once. Yeah. Like, like even you can rewatch Goodfellas as many times as we have. And obviously, you know when that scene is coming. But there, I remember viscerally the first time I ever saw Goodfellas. When was that? How old? It, we didn't get into that. We talked about that with Casino. That's, no, that's, that's a good question. I did see this one kind of early. I, I, this was, I was one of those I movies. I was young, folks. I'll put it that way. So yeah. Like, like, uh, like, th- I think how young I was, if I went to my friends, one of my best friends, Chris, has a son, and I'm going to ask him, like, who's got to be approaching 7, 8, which is when he and I were watching Goodfellas, like, would you show him? Goodfellas, he's going to look at me like I'm on drugs. What the fuck are you talking about? Of course not. It's just so funny how, and I I don't think I would show this to an eight-year-old. I mean, I'm a a responsible adult. I wouldn't do that. But uh, my father showed me this when I I was eight, shortly after a screening of Raging Bull. But, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast. Like, I really looked at movies a different way. And I'd be like sitting in front of the screen with my notepad talking about like, how did they do that? Or And I'm looking up like, oh, who's that actor? I want to look up everything they're in. So I was uh, very odd in terms of my movie love, very young. But yeah, I, I was just curious when what your entry point into this was. But this came out in 90. Like, I absolutely remember watching this VHS and that iconic cover of them, that poster of the three of them standing there. Yeah, really, really young. <laughs> I wasn't that young, but it was before high school. Yeah. And it was definitely before I... I really entered into my appreciation of film. 
But I do remember watching this movie and not understanding that it was a masterpiece or not feeling like it, mm-hmm. but also realizing, oh, I'm watching a, a something special here. And new. I had and never new. seen anything like it. Yeah. I My appreciation for it developed over rewatches for sure. Sure, sure. But that first time, I think my biggest takeaway from the whole movie was the scene where Pesci got killed because of the off-screen very, very quick. Oh no. Boom. That the realization that he was gonna So every time I rewatch this movie now and I wait for this scene, I try to pinpoint the exact editing decision of when that voice it's not it's not a voiceover, it's an off-screen line comes in because that was so strategically placed for the first time you see that movie. Mm-hmm. You don't think at all he's going to get killed right there. That even I remember distinctly at 8 years old being it's still one of the most shocking things I've ever seen in a movie because I didn't I I'm not I don't know like where the movie's going. I was young. And when that yeah. happened, hearing that oh no and then you get I don't know a fraction of a second a millisecond a fraction before of you a see second. the blood and you're you just sit there and then he fucking stands there yep. and that's that and you're like Oh my god! And it's the even quicker POV shot of the room he's yes. entering into. Empty. I always thought in my head that that shot lasts for longer than it actually does. No, it's like a few frames. How quick do we need to see this shot of an empty room, and then just so really quickly add in? Oh no! Because I think he's still saying no, finishing that vowel when he's getting shot. Yeah. Yeah. All of that plays such a very, very important factor into that one moment that you only get one time upon first watching it. And it's so fucking effective. To me, it's still the, it's just like The Departed. It's just, it's that, it's that, uh, but I think this is a little bit more even more masterful in that way. Yeah, because it's your own crew who does it. And I mean, now any person who's a fan of Sopranos or mob movies, we know that it's, you know, often it is your crew, but this is the first time I'm seeing that and I'm like, whoa, and it's these old dudes, like the head, head made guys in the family. They're the ones who do it. And it's like, wow, you know, for Billy Bats and a lot of other things too. You're bringing up a good point too about how it is constructed. And this is why we talk about the great editor Thelma Schoonmaker in our, whenever Marty gets brought up, because she's edited almost all of his movies, certainly since Raging Bull. And that is what they are so daring with, is how long does someone need to see this? We could talk about this. That could dominate the entire conversation of the last half hour of the film. Like, how fast, faster, faster, the jumping in the fire sequence. And she says every time they would screen the film for an audience or just for them, especially in that last half hour, they'd go faster, faster, faster. Like, we just need to make it faster. And that's what makes the movie so alluring and fun is because it's not over-edited, say, in a way that like a Michael Bay movie might be to where you're looking around and you can't catch everything. Uh It's edited just the right amount to where you want to go. You're compelled to go back and watch it and like, how did I just see Tommy die? Like, what did just happen there? Here's another one that I absolutely love, and this is going to bring us to our next actor to talk about when Lorraine Bracco sets that bloody fucking gun hides it in that compartment and we get that perfect match cut to the glass being wrapped at the wedding mazel tov it's just yeah I don't know who comes up with those ideas but I think that was actually a Marty idea but it's just so brilliant and Lorraine Bracco god I cannot say enough fine things about her in this movie I never seen her before and I mean honestly I'd 
after Goodfellas, I saw her in a few things here and there. Of course, she completely reinvented her career as Dr. Melfi on The Sopranos, very deliberately asking to not play the wife role. She didn't want to do, you know, Carmela Soprano. She already did Karen Hill. Very wise move. Did something much more, you know, subdued, but still very emotive in playing Dr. Melfi. And of course, she has uh, a lot to do as that show goes on. But here is Goodfellas. It's, this is one of the most believable you know, she's setting a big precedent here for Sharon Stone in Casino, and I always hold a lot of stock of the way Stone plays Ginger. It's like, you know, really going above a mob wife in a movie because, you you know, like every other mob girlfriend or wife in Goodfellas, like we see at that makeup party, that's usually how women are treated in these movies. They're not given a lot to do. They, they nag, they complain, they put on makeup, they want too much money. To give Lorraine Bracco so much to do and to show her devolving into drugs and chaos as well. It's just, it's brilliant. And I'm so glad she was nominated for this too. It's a great performance. I like it. I like this more and more with each passing viewing. I respect her more and more and I see more of her. The performance has always been there. It's always been the same, but I am seeing more from her every time. And it's, uh, she's fantastic in it. You, you brought up such a cool point about the way that she, in her narration, explains the other women in this life yeah. <laughs> because she is really bringing up all those things to make fun of or to have a negative viewpoint about and when you're talking about a movie that depicts women in a certain way she's actually verbally calling it out yep i think she is just absolutely breathtaking in this movie i think she can go toe to toe with all of the scenes that are being asked of her and you're going from absolute love to betrayal, to jealousy, to drugs, to... I think she's so great. My favorite scene with her is actually my favorite scene with Ray. Mm. So my favorite Ray moment of the entire movie is the scene where he stands her up at the date and then she just drives that car into the street. That's literally the first then, note I have for her too, for very specific yep. reasons. So I love this. Yeah, she looked good, like Liz Taylor. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so she's just going off, yes. like balls to the Who wall. Do you think you How are? dare you, yeah, standing me up, <laughs> you, you son of a bitch. Valley? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but when you look at him, at his face, as he is witnessing this, oh, yeah. it, and this is, this is a note that I wrote down, he truly looks like a man who's just fallen in love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He is seeing something with his eyes that he's never seen before, and he likes it. He's intrigued, and it's in front of all of his gangster friends, right. and they're all being like, ooh, and he doesn't give a shit. He is just completely entranced with what this woman's doing. And then when she's walking away, he goes, we can get this going back the other way. It's the one moment in the movie where I look at his character of Henry Hill and I go, that's a man who's sublimely happy in this one moment. That's my first note for her and her performance in this is that I love how they both aren't interested until her fire comes out. Yes. And then I like that it takes them a second. It takes that second meeting for them to fall for each other. But to your point, you can see him breaking down on that street. She start, and then she starts smiling. Like it's gonna cost you, Hill. It's gonna cost you a lot. Yeah, and it's it's so fucking believable. It's one of the best, like, quote unquote, meet cutes ever. But what what's so cool about it is that it is their second time meeting. First time was just yeah. a disaster. Like it didn't go well for anyone. Awful. And um, so Ray's beating of shithead neighbor Bruce is one of the most convincing beatings I've ever seen in a movie. 
And this, this again, this movie's 32 years ago, and there's few things I can think of it that match it because it's so relatable. We talked about this with, like, the coat hanger and The Departed, like how you see him stabbing him with that giant uh-huh. coat hanger. And this, you can just, I don't know, it's all held in one shot, and you can really imagine what it's like to get hit like that. And it happens 40 minutes into the movie, and I don't mean to sound morbid, but I think this is more of a scene that turned him into a star than anything else in the film, because you can really feel his rage watching this. Like it is palpable. And then it's a complete fucking reversal than what we may anticipate happens because she's turned on by it and admits it. And it leads to them directly getting married. So this violence is positively reinforced and it's just, it's star-making shit from both of them. I love that it takes fire in both of them to come out for them to be like, yeah, this is a long-term partnership worth diving into. It's like, really? At, after he stood you up and then he beat the shit out of some guy, that is what convinces everyone involved, let's just go for this. <laughs> oh, man. It's great. And and another great thing about why Ray Liotta is so like perfect for this movie, like there's no one else, is because once you start seeing more of his life and he has mistresses. Mm-hmm. There is like an element to like an audience understanding, you know, this Henry Hill is not a good guy. Right. But Ray Liotta is so goddamn charismatic. And there's something that you're watching about him that you just can't take your eyes off and you love. So you're almost, I don't know if forgiving is the right word, but you are. You're forgiving of the shitty things that he's doing. Well, he makes it seem so casual. I don't know if it, yeah. I don't know if it's like forgiving, but he's like, Saturday was for the wives, but Friday was always for the girlfriends. Yep. And you're like, wait, uh, huh? Yeah, this is the way it is, folks. And it's like, hey, again, depiction is not endorsement. It's just this is the way the guys lived. <laughs> and I think in that way, too, like that's what you're also getting from Lorraine Bracco is when all of a sudden – she starts going off the deep end with jealousy yeah. about all of that. Which is, this is a really superintendent? Some... You have a whore living in your apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I, love that, I love that scene so much. With the kids right there? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Think That's that... how you know she's like losing it because the kids are yep. there. Exactly. She's not going on her own. She's got the kids. They look fucking terrified. Ugh. And, and all that scene is is just a shot downwards, a still shot of just showing the kids right by her waist. Yep. It's fucking brilliant because, like, that's all you needed to do. Yeah, you can see her with the close up, it like, and then the quick cuts with the uh, with the buzzers, the apartment yeah. buttons, yeah. yeah, the buzzers and all that, and she's just losing her mind. And even then, again, with like the quick cuts of when she goes to visit him in jail and she sees the girl's the name next that to the visitor, so the French New Wave. It she takes yes, it Thel- is Thelma. Yep. I mean, takes like ten cuts to go boom, 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 and. You don't need to calculate everything. You, you know you're looking at a sign-in book. And then the way the light just hits it right there. So you just see Rossi, Janice Rossi. Oh, my God. I love that. That, again, is fucking around with the form. Thelma and Marty have already proved to us that they are masters of this. They know what they're doing. And the movie's very well told. It moves. And then right there, hey, give me, let's just make this crazy. Like, opening the book looking through it it just it gives it just that little burst of like boom it's that little burst of life we don't need it but right by having it it just gives a little bit more it's not wasted and then i mean we're mostly talking about their relationship 
when things are somewhat good, but then God, I mean, she's right along there with him during that downfall. And oh yeah, when he get that scene when he is when he gets out of prison, you know, why did you do that, Karen? He's just slamming against the wall, and she's sobbing, oh. and you're like. There's a few things playing out there. It's like he's hoping to find those drugs to sell it because he needs the money. But the dude is also jonesing. I mean, he's oh, been yeah? in jail and, you know, you got to get me out of here. And if he's using this much coke on a daily basis, like he needs that. He was relying on that to like get up. And then he's coming from a place of that's completely illogical. Like they wouldn't have found it. Like, yes, they would have. They were everywhere. dude. Yeah. Like, of course, she just pulls it out of like a drawer. Like it's of course they would have found it. And oh, man. But you really feel them falling down together. And I remember first few times seeing this, I was always surprised that she, his insistence on, no, she needs to come with me into like witness protection, into witness protection. Yeah. It's really cool. I, it was one thing they leave out that I got from the commentary is that he also insisted that two of his girlfriends come as well. Amazing. <laughs> and, and be put up in different houses. And they did. <laughs> oh my God. That's so fucking incredible. I love that. It's fucking crazy. Henry Hill. I can understand why they didn't include it in the movie, but right. to know that is a factual piece of information is is just that's that's i love that that's awesome gonna move on to paul sorvino here who plays paul cicero it's been brought up a lot that he was having trouble finding his character and he kind of found it a few days before and just go watch a paul sorvino interview even now like around the time now his voice does not sound like that. His voice is actually more up here. He's like an Italian opera singer. Like he has a much higher pitched voice and he does not present himself as an imposing figure. Like go watch his daughter winning best supporting actress and he melts. He starts sobbing. Like he's a very just emotional Italian man. And I, I love knowing that because it, it helps contextualize what he had to do to get to this rageful i mean this is an all-timer stare like this is just one of the best stares in all of film like you just god you really really see that it's so good and now i gotta turn my back on you oh you you feel it feel the heartbreak and all of it and it's an amazing performance to to your point because there's a lot of scenes with him where there is no dialogue and they're very quick cuts just to show that he's here Mm -hmm. and that he's the guy and a lot of it is just that. Like, he's literally walking in and out of cars, walking in and out of rooms. Well, that first time you see him, he's just staring at everyone like, don't act like fucking clowns out here on the street. Like, I love that yep. little stare he's doing. It's awesome. So he, he He does so much with his presence that there's not a lot of dialogue. And then every scene that we see with him and Ray is really just a different type of scene between a father figure and a son type. Mm -hmm. Or contrastly, maybe an employee and a boss. Like like that, that line is what's blurred. It's a little bit of both. And every scene is working on that type of hierarchy. And I and and you you buy it. And it's not until you get to that heartbreaking final scene that they have where he just gives him 3200 bucks. Oh, sweaty money. And and it's just that sums up what I've meant to you, what you've meant to me. He's got those like those bags under his eyes and you know, he may look like a fucking jerk. And the, yep. of course we get the insert shot of the sausages frying up. Oh, God, it's just the whole thing is brilliant, you know, in this back like uh, this back room. And I like that they left it a bit ambiguous as to like Paulie and Jimmy's intentions about what they were planning to do with henry 
And evidently, the real-life guy that Paulie here is based on did put out a hit on Henry Hill and was like, you can ice him out. So that's why he felt more compelled than ever to go into witness protection. He did feel that his life and his wife's life was in jeopardy. You know, there's that great scene with De Niro. Just go here. Turn right there. Oh. Like, just, no, yeah, go, 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 go. Oh, man, it's so chilling. You look at there at those guys moving stuff like, shh. Ooh. I, I argue that's the most uncomfortable scene in the movie. It's very uncomfortable and so well staged and shot. You can hear like this little wind and like the traffic and those that long kind of steady dolly of her walking. She looks terrified. It's great acting. There's no whole great lot going acting. on there. There's no like voice. So, you know, it's just it's all right there. You're just locked in. And it's the dynamic because it's the guy that you're married to for her and from her point of view. And this is like his best friend. Mm -hmm. And you trust that person. Of course. And yet he he's trying to do something awful. And it's it's so uncomfortable. I, I It's such a good scene. It's such a fucking good scene. So as I mentioned, I do think this is Ray Liotta's best work. One of my favorite actors. I loved watching him in everything. A few sad bits of trivia for this role here. His mother was very sick when he got the role, and he found out that she was going to pass away during the making of the movie and got the call, that dreaded call of like, this is hours away or like days away and you need to, oh you need to come God. back. And he got that call directly before they shot the scene of Paul Sorvino and Robert De Niro at Janice's apartment saying like, you got to go back home. Like, you, you know, this is what it is, but you got to leave this and you got to go back home. Like, she'll never divorce him. So if you go watch Ray in that scene, there's a certain weight on him that I was always curious about. Always. Like, he looks to be, I know he's ashamed because, you know, Paulie's here and Jimmy's here and they have to talk to him about him, about this mistress. And I know he's ashamed, but he seems very sad. That's why. That's the energy he's carrying. Wow. Pesci and like a lot of the teamsters, they came to the funeral, which was really nice. It's kind of cool to like organize everyone to come for support. And then Leota said one of the first scenes he shot after his mom's funeral was the pistol whipping scene. And I think it goes without saying that we can see some uh, an extra bit of rage being brought into that scene. And he did clip the guy once by mistake. He felt bad, but yeah, he did. He did get him Aye. once, which couldn't have felt good. But God, that sound design, everything about it, just, again, an extremely authentic beating. But all that to say, I do want to ask you where this does rank among Ray's best work for you. Oh, it's number one. Yeah, it's got to be, right? Like It, it just it has ah, to be. He carries it. He carries the whole movie. And that's not to say that, like, he peaked with this. No, no, no. It's no. the biggest movie he's been a part of, the biggest lead performance he's ever delivered. And it's amazing that he never got more opportunities to be a lead like this. But I think, you know, if you look at his whole entire career, like, you know, he steals every fucking scene he's mm -hmm. ever fucking in. And that's just that's just the truth. Charisma. I think he is the biggest scene stealer in the best possible way. Oh, yeah. Like that I can think of. Like, it doesn't matter what type of movie. Mm -mm. It, it could be a good movie because he's – it could be a good movie. He could be a not-so-good movie. He's done some of those. But he's never bad. And every scene he's in, it just becomes the scene of the movie. They tried to get him in the, in the Departed for a role, and it just – timing didn't work out. That would have been really cool. That I just – you know, I, of course, everyone wishes he and Marty could have worked together again. Marty released a very nice, you know, sentiment, eulogy-type thing shortly after Ray died saying that – he saw him in Marriage Story and was like, oh, my God, there's a whole new energy here that I want to harness and that he wanted to talk oh. to him immediately about working with him again. And 
it adds to the weight of it, adds to the sadness of it. But but I do want to touch on briefly, we talked about the last 30 minutes of this movie a lot way back at our favorite like song soundtrack moments because the jump into the fire sequence is one of mine just ever in film. I'm saying that a lot on this podcast, ever, all time, history. I know. Oh, well, that, it's crazy. I mean, it's good, fellas. Leota again, was never given enough credit for, I think, his performance in Goodfellas, at least critically and in terms of awards. He's just never been given, whenever I hear, like, what's the best addiction performances, this one doesn't get brought up a lot, I guess because it's not the entire movie, but what he puts into this, in these last, like, just in that sequence is more than most people do in an entire performance, and the way the whole sequence is organized, the editing, the music, there's like 30 songs. It was so expensive for them to use all this, all these different tracks, the pacing. His frenzy performance is just one component of it, but it is a component that should be recognized so much more. He just inhabits someone who is so gone so flawlessly. I mean, you really feel like he's going to get into that accident. Like, you fucking feel like he's going to slam into that guy. And I rewatched that scene a bunch. He's not even going that fast or slamming his brakes. That's all acting and sound design and editing. And how many times they're cutting. I'm like, I see him hitting his brakes there. The car is not, like, screeching. It's just, again, it's just filmmaking. It's brilliant fucking filmmaking. Brilliant. Brilliant. It's, I mean, the the mere fact that, that this movie didn't win for editing just for this sequence is just like this is one of those sequences where it's like yeah give it give it best editing just because of this yeah Yeah. and i think maybe the reason why the addiction aspect of it doesn't get the credit that you're talking about is most addiction performances that we revere and we talk about is because that's the the soul of the movie you know, we even shame, you know, like the whole entire movie is a character study on this guy right. with addiction. Leaving Las and, Vegas, um, he's always drinking. It's yeah, not like it's it, the it, last it, half hour of the movie. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's why it doesn't get talked about in that way. But when you're just watching the acting performance of somebody who is in that place, this is that great. And it's also like, you know, the makeup. Oh, my it, it's God. It's so... Visceral when you see that close up of him taking that line and he's white as a ghost, but his nostrils are red, are oh, so red. That's when we like cut in and yeah, and he just and yep. he s- sits up and looks, and you're like, Holy fuck, he's just gone. He's just at yep. on top of everything else he's done today, he's still pushing it, he's still going. Oh. Yep, <laughs> and, and it's that, that right there, that lap, that's that's my favorite moment. That's my fucking favorite with the whole entire sequence is that he just walks away, like. <laughs> She like throws a brick of coke at him. I'm like, Jesus Christ, people. Uh, Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, it's like that stuff doesn't happen by accident. It, you know, if you don't think about movies and you just enjoy what you're watching, that's great. I want people to to do that. But if you investigate, it's like how many takes they would have done for this. Like for as an actor to keep that energy level up there for weeks, it would have taken weeks to film this segment. Just it's so impressive. It's just so impressive. But we focus a lot on Ray in this episode for good reason but but any other scattered thoughts here to get to before we wrapped up i like for instance that the actress playing the babysitter slash drug mule would later play joe hoffa jimmy's wife in the irishman and she's great in that with her scene with De Niro on the phone um 
just love all the guys. I love the structure of meeting those first round of guys, you know, Jimmy two times. And then an hour later, we're, we're meeting the second round of guys, uh, Johnny Buddha, Johnny Roast Beef, you know, Stax Edwards. Just, yeah, just the world. Like, it, it, like he sets up the world so well that even if you've never known it, you, you don't need to. He's introducing you to it. Yeah. You really do feel like you're in a book in a way. Like it, it does feel like you're receiving the story in the way that you read something. I, I agree. It's very novelistic. And again, this was written by Nicholas Pileggi, and he co-wrote the screenplay with Scorsese. And then, but real quick, kind of a funny side story here. Have you ever seen a movie called My Blue Heaven? Directed by Herbert Ross, written by Nora Ephron, who was with Nicholas Pileggi at the time, starring Steve Martin. It actually came out a few months before Goodfellas. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've heard of this. I haven't seen it, though, I, but I know exactly what you're talking about. That is a direct extension of Goodfellas, because Nora Ephron was with Nick Pileggi at that time. In the movie, it's a comedy, but it's all about a mob guy who goes into witness protection. So if you want to see, like, a oh, comedy of where Goodfellas leaves off with him as a schnook, and then that's where My Blue Heaven picks up. The, Goodfellas is never referenced. Henry Hill is never referenced. But this is definitely Nick Pileggi working on this movie with Nora Ephron. And it's one of my favorites, Steve Martin. And Rick Moranis is in it. He's great. It's a hilarious movie. Oh, my movie. God. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. That sounds amazing. Yeah, he's playing like just this really, I mean, it's a very like uh, satirical version of a gangster that Steve Martin's doing, but there's this great early scene when he like goes to a grocery store and tries to pay in hundreds and they're like, a hundred dollar bill? Like they've never seen a hundred dollar bill and it's great. And he's, you know, he's got the, he's hamming up with the accent, but yeah, Rick Moranis is like the the agent in charge of making sure he's protected <laughs> oh that's that's fantastic i mean that's peak that's peak martin and moranis yeah no right <laughs> i haven't seen that in forever so it made me want to recheck that one out i'd forgotten that little tidbit but yeah favorite shots of the movie goodfellas the director of photography is michael ballhouse who i mean they had such a great partnership together in terms of where to put the camera how much to move it when not to move it the cinematography of this movie again is one of the other components that makes it so brilliant there's a Copacabana shot. Oh, talked, I that's mean, one it. of the great yep. tracking shots in the history of cinema. That's just where the conversation begins because there's, it's kind of one of those things where that shot is so good that when you bring up cinematography and Goodfellas, that's what everyone kind of goes to. And you, because you yep. can talk about that shot for like an hour, then the cinematography conversation may end. But the whole thing is shot fucking brilliantly. I, I honestly love the, it's brutal, but seeing Pesci kill stacks again, oh. and now it's in slow motion and it's from underneath yep. and you're like, Jesus. Ugh. My favorite shot of the, of the whole entire movie is actually, it's the pistol. Oh man. It's the point of view of the so pistol. So good. When someone says Goodfellas, visually, that shot comes to mind. Him looking down the barrel of that gun. Yeah. Yep. Oof. She cocks it. And then oh, the man. vice versa. Yep, of of him looking right at it. You can see the bullets yep. in the chamber. There's just something about that the that construction that just is so damn effective. I okay, this is the compliment that I give it. It's the only time in a movie I feel like there's a gun on me. I'm feeling the energy of what it could possibly be like to be have a gun pointed at you. Have you ever fired like a revolver? Yeah, I have. Actually, when you pull that trigger back. No, you fucking didn't. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Shot him dead. Right in the fucking head. Jesus. That's fucking pretty done. fucking funny, though. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the point I'm making is when you pull that hammer back, 
when they call that thing a hair trigger, yeah. you do not have to apply a lot of pressure to fire nope. a gun when that hammer is pulled back. I know a lot of people know this, but I'm just saying, like, I didn't know that the first time I watched this movie. And then I, the very first thing, the first time I fired a gun like that, I remember thinking of Goodfellas, like, holy shit, you could just accidentally pull, I mean, if you pull this hammer back, you barely have to touch that thing and boom. Barely. And the fact that yep. he grabs it from her and then goes nuts, they were really nervous to film that. They knew it was going to be intense and it was intense. And um, Lorraine Bracco was actually with Harvey Keitel at the time. They were together and dating and he was nervous for her to film that. And he said, just make sure you tell Ray to take it easy in that scene. Like, don't go too far. And if, I mean, it feels like they're going far. I mean, I have to come home for this. Oh my God. Yeah. He's got his hand in her hair. He punches the, uh, the, the drawer. Oh my God. That seems amazing. (laughs) Well, my friend, we could be here all day. We could do this all day. I I still feel like we just like scratch the surface. It's, are there any other, you know, broad stray thoughts you want to say i you know we talk about special features on dvds and blu-rays and commentaries the commentary for this with henry hill and the agent who got him into witness protection edward mcdonald who plays himself in the movie which is cool the guy who's you know don't sell me to babe in a woods routine karen i heard those tapes (laughs) that's a guy who actually did it he's playing himself and to hear them on the commentary it's not one where like the real henry hill he's not talking the whole time you know he kind of fades out but um during the killing of Joe Pesci, of Tommy in particular, McDonald at one point says, you know, Henry, you look really upset watching this. And you can hear it in his voice. It's like, this is the most upsetting part of the movie. It's just a, very upsetting the way this happened. Um, so just, I, I don't know, it's just cool to get, it's not very often that you get to hear the subject of a movie, you know, at, literally narrating it. <laughs> it's not just his voiceover. He's doing a commentary. So I would recommend people listen to that if you're as obsessed with Goodfellas as we are. And then the diehard Goodfellas aficionados, my what are you watching recommendation is a go all in. If you're really into Goodfellas, I want you to watch this movie. But do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? And we do go, we do volley back and forth, fucker, because I have a spreadsheet that you have access to where I put who went first. Anyway, you want to go first? I don't think it exists. You have access to it. There's two people <laughs> in the world that have access to it. Me and you. I'll go first. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll I'll do it for once. I'll, <laughs> I'll go. I'll do first for once. I'm doubling down on on our, on our boy Ray. Oh yeah. It, it, we know we listed a lot of movies in throughout this podcast that are movies that absolutely see his performances in something wild, Field of Dreams. I mean, that's just a beautiful movie. Uh, we we reference way back in our Place Beyond the Pines podcast where we talk about the weight of his performance in that. And I do think that he is the ultimate scene stealer. But the one movie that I want to bring up with him, we talked about how the violence of this movie, I think the movie I'm bringing up is actually my most, personally, my most effective use of violence I've ever seen. Mm. And it's uh, Killing Them Softly. Oh, boy. Great call. What a good movie. (laughs) I'm laughing. Brad Pitt, Andrew (laughs) Dominic is the director. It's a great fucking movie. It's always on Netflix. It's definitely one that it would go good with a cup of coffee. You kind of got to really pay attention to the slow burn of this movie. But Ray Liotta's in it. He's got a scene where violence happens to him. And it is um, it's truly, truly um, disturbing and um, gritty. Marky Trapman. It's just a great movie. And another example of why he is who he is. I think it's just a great, great performance from him. And just a really, really good movie that I highly recommend to anyone who hasn't seen it. Killing Him Softly. 
Andrew Dominic, Brad Pitt, James Gandolfini, James Gandolfini, Scoot McNeary, Ben Middleson. Oh yeah, Scoot McNeary. <laughs> Richard yeah, Jenkins ben Middleson, is yeah. great. But I was going to say the introduction to um, James Gandolfini's character is one of, I think, filmmaking-wise, one of the coolest introductions to a character you can see. So pay attention to it. Is it the escalator? It's the escalator. That's all I'll say. But, yeah. Yeah, it's the escalator, but it's <laughs> yeah. also the, the the voiceover that's happening and right. the, yes, what's going yes, on yes. on TV. And it, it's cool. It's very, very cool. And that was one of his final film roles, and he's so good in that. He's only in like two or three scenes. Like He's so good. I mean, I love Andrew Dominic has made three movies. He, his fourth is going to come out very soon. It's Blonde with Anna de Armas playing Marilyn Monroe. It's rated NC-17. It's going to be premiering on Netflix. Um, I, I think aside from the Scorsese movie that's coming out at the end of the year, that's, those are my two that I'm looking the most forward to. I love Andrew Dominic. He makes the movie that's like, oh, have you ever seen a prison drama? Like, yeah, I've seen a prison movie. Okay, now you're going to go see a supremely fucked up one with Chopper. Still my favorite movie by him. Have you ever seen a Western? Well, yeah. Now you're going to go see one that's completely revisionist. Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Have you ever seen like a sweaty, dirty mob movie? Well, yeah, of course. Okay, now you're going to see one. <laughs> now you're going to see one that's 97 minutes, a slow burn, but has some supremely fucked up action in it and is incredibly entertaining. Now go watch Killing Them Softly. We've seen Marilyn Monroe biopics. I promise Blonde is going to be very different. I have no idea yes. what the hell it's going to be yes. about, but it's going to be very different. He's such a good director. And yeah, Leota is Marky Trapman. He's just one of my favorite aspects of the movie. Any movie he was in, he's one of my favorite aspects of it. And the violence that he has to endure in this movie is not something that you you will forget yep. if you watch it. You mentioned like gritty and all that stuff. It's also like kind of funny. It is funny. <laughs> like it just is because of the people uh, inflicting the violence and the way they are reacting to it is kind of amusing. Good recommendation for sure. Love always doubling down on Ray. My What Are You Watching? It is a double down because I already mentioned it, but I'm hammering it home hard. Jules and Jim, 1962, Francois Truffaut. This is not a troll. People think I'm going to be like trolling that I'm telling people to go watch this French New Wave <laughs> <laughs> masterpiece from 1962. This movie has virtually nothing to do with the mafia, with the mob. It's about a love triangle that spans about 25 years, and it is absolutely fucking delightful from first frame to last. It's funny, sad, compelling, crazy. Again, the editing and the storytelling narrative styles were the biggest movie influence on Goodfellas. And I promise you, if you are a fan of Goodfellas, if you go watch Jules and Jim, you're going to understand what I'm talking about. And it's so cool. Scorsese is so open with his references, just like Tarantino, Soderbergh. And I've always appreciated that because there are some like movie buffs who like to watch a lot of movies and they just watch, you know, what's in front of them. There are some freaks like me who like to investigate what influenced Goodfellas. So then I go back to the source and now I'm back in 60s French New Wave like, okay, this is this doesn't have anything to do with the mafia, but I just I love that. I love going back to the source, seeing where these masters got their influences from like I always say, if Star Wars, the original or that original trilogy, if you consider those some of your favorite movies ever and you've never seen a Kurosawa film, you're seriously missing out because that's where George Lucas got like all this stuff. So, you know, one final selling point for Jules and Jim, I I watched it, I blind bought it, watched it once in college, had not seen it since. And then researching Goodfellas, I'm like, oh, yeah, that was an influence for this. Put it on. 
It's about an hour and 45 minutes. I spent three hours watching it because I kept rewinding it to little gems that I had missed. Yeah. Like, it, it goes fast and yep. I don't speak French. So I may have missed a line here and there and I'm going back and I'm just delighted, like laughing out loud. I, I genuinely, I can't talk about Jules and Jim highly enough, but maybe my favorite French New Wave movie. But if you've never ventured back that far, it, it'll be worth it, I promise. So this was a lot of fun. I've been meaning to open it up and be able to talk to you about Ray in more of like an in-depth way. And, you know, there's just never a bad time to talk about Goodfellas. And I'm glad, I'm glad we did this. It was fun and good recommendations all around. Good episode. Good episode. Go home and get your fucking shine box. You want to see helicopters? <laughs> want to see helicopters. All right, everyone. As always, thanks so much for listening and happy watching. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostel.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. Send us mailbag questions at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Next time, we're going to keep our Ray Liotta streak going by discussing Nick's favorite film of all time, Ted Demi's Blow. It's on Netflix right now. Go watch it. Stay tuned.